0: Hey, listeners. Today's episode includes discussion of difficult topics, including suicide. If you or someone you know is in crisis or is thinking about suicide, please know that there are several national resources available 24-7. For example, the National Suicide Lifeline is available at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-TALK. We will list additional resources in the show notes for today's episode. Thanks for listening. In this True Crime Law and Order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals. One who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Okay, and one, two, three. Yay. You feel
1: good about that one? I do, but you're editing it, so you tell me. (laughs) I feel great. <laughs> I feel great.
0: <laughs> I feel amazing.
1: I'm doing amazing right now. <laughs> you know what I hate? I hate when people use the phrase "amaze balls." Oh, really? Why? I think it's annoying.
0: All right, I'll, I know I'll it's
1: give you that. really popular. A lot of people say it. Uh, it's just—it's a little too like quirky. Trying to—it's—it's
0: it's trying too hard.
1: Yeah, it's amaze balls reminds me of like if someone was going to. Go into an audition for a role that was asking for like a Zoe De Chanel type, and the girl didn't know what to say to be that way, but she really wanted this part. She like <laughs> uh-huh. would look up like, "What do quirky people say?" And Amaze Balls would be on that
0: list. I I think of it as a character. Like, uh, did you know the SNL skit of the Disney acting school, mm-hmm. <laughs> Disney Channel acting school? <laughs> yeah. Amaze Balls would show up on that for oh, sure. Totally, totally. But I would say our podcast. If I was someone to say Amaze Balls you it's, would call it maze balls i would say it's amaze balls and i think this hey, episode's going to be a good one i think that the type of people who say amaze balls are the also the type of people who would say narnar like uh, Nar? gnarly <laughs> oh god i've
1: never heard that <laughs> you've never heard narnar you know why cuz Gnarly is a very west coast thing Oh, is it? yeah, oh yeah. yeah, I can see that It feels gnarly. very like nineties it does I'm a surfer skater, <laughs> gnarly, <laughs> yeah, gnarly seems like the kind of thing that would like shoot up on your screen during like um if you're watching rocket power <laughs> on like Nickelodeon or something, like someone would do like a a skateboarding move and gnarly would shoot up on your screen in like green font with like an explosion <laughs>
0: symbol behind it. <laughs> Speaking of like pop art like uh capow uh things, somebody posted a an image uh, of some superhero comic. I want to say it was like the Green Lantern and he's punching somebody like, you know, he has like 25 arms cuz he's punching so fast in like the comic image. And the little sound caption for that is WAP, W A P. Uh-huh. And somebody was like, "Well, thanks Cardi B, I can never read any comics the same way ever again." <laughs> I didn't even think about how much of a sound
1: effect that is. Yeah. oh i actually would like to thank cardi b sincerely and megan the stallion sincerely for um for, for doing WAP. that yeah <laughs> yeah it's a it's a great song it's amazing <laughs> it is so what's going on how's uh
0: how's it going do we have anything we want to we want to talk about I think that the main thing is that we have officially launched the Ripped from the Headlines podcast. So this is episode six. This is the first one that we're recording since the release of the first five episodes. And if you are listening to this and you've listened to the other episodes, uh, if you haven't already, please rate us and uh, subscribe because in this early days of the launch of the podcast, if we get a lot of reviews and subscriptions, maybe we'll show up on the new and noteworthy and a whole ton of people will find us. So if you could do that for us, take two seconds out of your life. And review us. That would be amazing. Exactly. And if you are amazing, um, amazing. <laughs> if you
1: if you are a listener, uh, new listener. Well, you're all new listeners. But if you are listening, um, I would like to say to our true crime family out there, think of this as like the first 48 hours after a crime. You know, like the first 48 hours is when it's vital to to get to all your leads. Yeah. So this is like in podcast world. This is the first 48. And so anything you could do to get out there and show us how you feel about us <laughs> in a positive way. So do the thing is get on social media, find us on everything. We'll be telling you about that every episode anyway, but sincerely rating and reviewing right now, it seems like, uh, I don't want to go be clicking buttons. No one wants to be doing that kind of crap right now, but I'm telling you, the simplest clicks of your buttons would make such a huge difference for the show. And we want to be doing this for a long time for you guys. So yeah, help us out. Yeah, please. Thank And you. thank you so much.
0: The response has been so great so far. I know it's pretty incredible. We, Matt and I have another podcast, uh, that is a, uh, like a book club podcast. And I think within like the first two hours of, the launch of Ripped from the Headlines, we like beat our records for like the first couple of months of our other podcast. So, uh, very appreciative of everybody who is listening and subscribing and all that cool stuff. Yeah. Thank you so much. We're, we're so
1: excited. You guys are doing everything we would have wanted to happen with this podcast so far is happening. Like, we want to have engagement and you guys are engaging with us. We want to have people who are interested in giving us feedback and we've gotten great feedback. So, yeah, you're you're doing everything that we amazing. could have ever dreamed of. Amazing. You're, you're doing amazing. You're
0: doing amazing, honey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. So this, as you may have uh, guessed, is ripped from the headlines. It is a fact and fiction podcast that recaps episodes of Law and & Order and talks about the true crimes that inspired the show. I am, I was about to say, I am Matt, I but d- I am not Matt. <laughs> I,
1: almost, I could hear you saying, I am Matt, from the way you were saying it somehow. <laughs> somehow that I am could have only been followed by a consonant beginning mm-hmm.
0: name. <laughs> yeah, that's actually Matt over there.
1: Yeah, that's me all the way over here.
0: All the way <laughs> over there. I'm pointing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm N. Hey. This week is episode six of Law and & Order, and this one is int- are we ready to dive in? Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? No, I think I think we're ready to
1: dive in because I'm really curious about how you're going to preface this, uh, this episode because it's really interesting. Okay. Now that I've watched it, even though I was anticipating this, it's very yeah. interesting.
0: Okay, okay. So this is episode six, and technically this is actually the pilot episode of the show, so it's the first one that kind of, I guess, got it picked up for broadcast, publication, mm-hmm. production. Sure. And uh, it's titled Everybody's Favorite Bagman. And th- so this aired sixth in the sort of sequence Out to the World. Right. And I know that I complain about the bad writing on Law and Order, but <laughs> this one really takes the cake. Like this... <laughs> I feel like it It was a totally... You
1: can definitely tell... Well, first of all, like I'm sure you're going to talk about, you can definitely tell the difference in, in quality of filming. Yes. Not that yes. what we're watching... What we watched in the episodes is anything to, you know, write home about, but it's markedly different. And I don't know if you researched this at all, but I looked up because I was like, they look different. The the actors even look noticeably different, a few of them. And so I looked it up and it says that this was filmed two years before the series premiered. Oh, wow. So this was actually in, like, 98 then? 88. Eight, oh, sorry, 88. Yeah. yeah. So this wow. was filmed in 88, and so some of them have gained weight, lost hair.
0: They're... Yes, okay, Captain Cragen. And... Oh, no, uh, ADA, EADA Stone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's bald in the rest of the episodes, right? Am yes. I, am I making that up? Kragen and
1: Stone have both lost hair since okay. 88 and, um, Grevy's gained a, a noticeable amount of weight. Chris Noth okay. is noticeably getting a little bit older because he's so young. So you could tell the yeah. difference. Yeah. And, um, you notice the cast thing also, I'm sure, which I don't know if you're going to mention or not. The cast, the thing? casting change. No. Oh, so I don't know if you picked up on this because he's only featured very briefly, but the opening credits are the actual opening credits for the show. So they're the credits from 1990, showing all the characters as they are now. But the actual, um, oh I didn't write down his name, but I can find it. But either way, the person who plays D.A. Schiff normally is Stephen Hill. In this one, it's a different D.A. before Stephen Hill was cast as D.A. Schiff. This was the original person who was cast as the DA, but by the time it got picked up, he was already committed to something else. So we see Adam Schiff being shown as the DA in the opening credits, and then it's a totally different DA that we never see again as the DA, but fun fact, should come back, I think, as like a random character down the line.
0: So my note about this episode is that it's so poorly written with cheesy dialogue and and an almost incomprehensible storyline to me
1: mm. that,
0: that I was like, there were several times where I was just getting so frustrated with the episode because I was having such a hard time keeping track of who were they talking about and mm. what kind, like, it felt like they were just... Like they weren't as concerned about telling a really gripping, clear story in this episode as they were, like trying to give a vibe for the show to kind of like market it to the to the production companies to see if they wanted to pick it up or whatever. A hundred percent. Because I was like, I don't, I don't even understand what's going on, and I found it hard to care at times. <laughs> <laughs> we rewound so many times, so many times. Yes. So. All that to say, the episode opens with two beat cops in a car, again, same as the, I think the last episode we talked about, or maybe the one before that. Yeah, it's a, it's a a common thing. Yeah. (laughs) So they're talking, the driver is talking about how he wanted to buy a Cadillac, but he ended up with, quote, an Asian ant box. And I don't even know what that means, but I'm just going to assume that it's racist in some way. Sure. Same. I was like, where yeah it's what, what's an ant box
1: i'm i don't know was I, he talking about me, like the car was smaller or, or something i guess he's trying to say it's like it's not made in america it's I one guess. of those like japanese yeah. cars and yeah ant, ant box like what yeah, are they trying I've to never heard that phrase before is that
0: like a the car version of a roach motel maybe uh, and ant everybody box. just checks in but they never check out <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I literally just Googled ant box to see if I could find anything. And uh, I guess there are, it's like an ant colony thing, but I don't, I don't understand what that has, has to do with cars. It's a ridiculous
1: either. reference. And if yes. anybody out there <laughs> knows what an ant box is from hearing it, I would love to know. Cause I would, I'm willing to bet
0: <laughs> zero. Yeah. A hundred percent. And, um, for sure, we're going to start a, a cover band of alien ant farm and call it alien ant box.
1: Oh, I'm so into it
0: we'll we'll cover their cover of michael jackson's smooth criminal that'll be on our next episode give us a give us a week to practice
1: and are you okay
0: <laughs> not not even a little bit not even a little bit all right so they spot they're like driving along and they spot a a, a car where people are sort of like running away fast and they see a man hanging out of the car and they are uh, see that he's injured. They call him a Vic, which, you know, victim, mm. and they chase after the men, fleeing away from the car. A few minutes later, or I don't know, some amount of time later, Grievy and Logan arrive at the scene, and Grievy has a, There is. Oh, wow. Okay, oh, yeah. So Grevy, the whole episode has a cigar in his mouth. The whole episode. And he and Logan are heading toward the scene saying that the victim is still on the scene and that emergency services are, are taking him to the hospital, but they arrive at the scene and we see the victim laying in a stretcher and the EMT or the police officer, I'm not sure who is like shining a flashlight in the victim's eyes, but his eyes are closed and so I'm not sure what kind of medicine they've been trained in, but I'm pretty sure that's not a test for anything. Uh, because it's a test if, for battery life on the on the <laughs> on the on the, the flashlight. The, you're absolutely right. It is a test <laughs> for the battery on the flashlight because like his eyes are closed. Like that's supposed to test like pupil dilation to see for head injury kind of stuff. I'm assuming, you know, trust me, I'm definitely a doctor, but that looked like no kind of medicine I had ever seen practiced before.
1: It was the equivalent of someone uh, trying
0: to look busy when their boss is walking by. Oh my God. They just grab a stack of papers and a (laughs) clipboard and and you start walking really fast so that it looks like you're in a hurry to get things done.
1: Yeah. The closest thing he could
0: find was a flashlight and he just like, he didn't know what to do. Yeah, absolutely. So the director just said, you there, you're the doctor, do some medical things. (laughs) And he's just, like, tapping the, f- the stethoscope on his forehead. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, Greevy recognizes the victim and asks the beat cops if the victim's ID has been found. And they say no because his wallet was stolen, but they had run the plates on the car. And they find out that it was a man named Chuck Halsey, who we learn is a councilman. Councilman? Councilman, councilman yeah. Apparently, who has been very vocal about complaining about the streets being unsafe and Grievy goes, I hate media cases, and then we get the title sequence, so <laughs> I think he's assuming that there's going to be a lot of publicity, publicity and, and news, and which, ironically, we do see a little bit, but not very much, so.
1: Yeah, I think they were just, like you said, they were trying to put a little bit of everything in this episode, Yeah, because, also, fun fact, this was uh, shopped, dire- it was, dr- like, CBS was supposed to get it, and then they said no, and then they gave it away to, um, I think, ABC, who then also said no on it, and then NBC got it, so it was a process, so I think they were really trying to put a little bit of everything in this uh, episode, like, oh. There's going to be media coverage type stuff. There's going to be a cop with a cigar. Oh, there... God. <laughs> you know, there's going to be racism. There's going to be sexism. There's going to be everything. So L- Literally everything. Yeah. And then they
0: there... deliver you just a little bit of nothing. <laughs> we <laughs> go, girl, give us nothing. This episode should be titled The Kitchen Sink. That's really what they should have titled this episode, because they really tried to give us everything in this episode and and, and under-delivered on everything everything yeah so we just got the kitchen <laughs> sink <laughs> literally just the kitchen sink so then after the title sequence we're in the hospital and Grievy is gesturing emphatically with his cigar and there's a nurse who says you can't smoke that in here and he's like it's not lit okay then why are you like waving a cigar around in the, in the hospital and sticking it in your mouth it's so weird bizarre and he 's complaining about how journalists are such a pain in the ass for police because they called and they you know follow up on leads, and you know what do you know da da and indeed and indeed, as they come upon the hospital room of councilman halsey they there 's like a bevy of journalists who are talking to a man who's saying, "Now do you see what Chuck 's been screaming about uh basically you know his his whole like the streets aren 't safe thing right This justifies what what Chuck has been complaining about. And then he escorts Chuck's wife away from the cameras. I don't know who that man actually is, but I'm assuming he's like the family lawyer. Because I don't I don't know that we ever learned his name, really, but doesn't matter. Yeah, I will say I thought that some of the extras acting
1: in this was far better than what we're seeing <laughs> later on. Yeah. And I'm yeah. wondering if that's on purpose. I'm wondering if they needed to because this episode's tone is also a lot more there's a lot less humor, like little there humory moments in this it's one.
0: It's kind of it's kind of grittier and like dirtier and it and it almost feels like something like they made, if it were today, they would have been aiming for like a Netflix series. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. it just
1: feels like definitely a different vibe than the rest of it. And I think that as much as we tease about the kind of ridiculous over-the-top acting, I think they really <laughs> got it of good balance after this episode.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. So, uh, and Logan follow that man, the family lawyer, I guess, and the councilman's wife, and they overhear the doctor who I swear to God is a, is a, uh, is a like extra actor. What do you call that? Somebody who's like not really a well-known actor, but.
1: Oh, like,
0: um, like a character actor, maybe? No, I think a character actor is like a, Yeah anyway yeah he's he's an extra that like i know his voice i know i've seen him in things but i i even went to his IMDb imdb page and couldn't figure out who he was but he tells them that uh, mr halsey made it through surgery so now all they can do is wait to see how he does and logan and creevy ask the councilman's wife and the lawyer who uh, if they know anything about the crime and the lawyer says we heard it was two black kids And Logan asks for a list of the councilman's belongings, which, brace yourself, includes an alligator skin wallet, a sapphire ring, a gold and diamond Rolex, and he usually carries about $500 in cash. Who carries $500 in cash around? Do people do that? Uh, No,
1: not unless they're... Intending really rich, to film a music video where they're going to be throwing it in the air.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just $500 in singles. Their wallet is like actually a brick that they just stick in the back pocket. <laughs> their alligator wallet. Yeah.
1: We, we get it. He has He's money. rich.
0: He's loaded. <laughs> He's got... Anyway, he's got expensive taste that is also, that? also very what's tacky. This? What's the scene of Nini and uh, Sheree? I am. I re- am very rich, <laughs> very rich, rich. <laughs> <laughs> So she asks, the wife asks, like, why are you asking questions? Like, I thought, you know, who did it? And Logan says, well, we know there were two black kids there, but they didn't drive him to that location. So what we see doing all the way out there. And apparently Councilman Halsey had been at a political dinner that ended at 1030 but they didn't really know if he left alone and they didn't know like how he got to the site of where this attack and robbery took place. So then we go to outside the hospital and and here we have our first introduction of the Greavy logan debate that sort of sets the tone of the episode for us that we're meant to kind of follow and question. But Logan thinks there's something weird about this case and Grievy mentions old rumors about Chuck Halsey, Councilman Halsey. Um and how he quote ran the pad, and Logan says he was a bag man, and I had to Google both of those things because I think we were supposed to glean something from that. But this is a a phrase or a way of speaking that I am not familiar with. And, and neither even after am I, s- I I did a fair amount of Googling, and I'm still not a hundred percent sure that I have this correct. But the gist that I get is that a bag man is somebody who's kind of in on the take of illicit schemes. And so maybe he kind of was abusing his position as a councilman to accept bribes or to like funnel money to people or, or something like that. It, it basically implies that he was profiting somehow off of his p- uh, political position as a councilman. I
1: swear we rewound that exact scene. I, I'm not even going to lie because I could not understand them. I just kept raising the volume on the on the TV and and playing it over again. And Davey couldn't tell what it was either. When he was like they ran the pad. Yeah. By the way, until you just said the word pad, I still didn't know what he said there. Because Did you I couldn't understand it. No, cuz I have the episodes
0: oh on your computer. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And so I can't. And so <laughs> I was so Confused, and again, I I googled bagman, and I had to google it for a while because even the yeah. descriptions I was reading until I didn't make sense. I still don't get it. I think you're kind of right. I, I think it's just someone who is doing criminal Illicit. type behavior, yeah. and it yeah. involves like the collection and distribution of money.
0: Perfect, I guess. Well, I'm glad that we're on the same page after both being confused and googling. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> So this was the moment where I had to Google whether Law and Order writers had ever been nominated for an Emmy because (laughs) Logan's response was, this really frosts my cookies, Max. (laughs) We also had a moment there. That was just a treasure like those that I think that of all of the awful cheesy lines we've heard so far in the entire series, this one is like the pinnacle of awful. Oh, without
1: a doubt. But it did make me think of frosted cookies, and I—oh, god,
0: those those ones from the grocery store that are just like sugar, sugar cookies with the oh, the loft house ones.
1: Is that what they're called? They're yeah, like kind yeah. of like they're soft. They're like melt in your squishy. mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oof, um, those I was are so good. Those are so good. I was thinking of like iced oatmeal cookies or like um those like iced molasses cookies.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah.
1: love, love those. Um, So,
0: you know, if if, if this is frosting as cookies, you're welcome. Honestly, I mean, who wants an unfrosted cookie, really? So you should be grateful for this moment. Yeah, that should have been the response. I mean, like that really butters my toast. (laughs) Well, thank you then, because who wants dry toast? I appreciate it. Thank you. (laughs) So Grievy says he didn't tell Logan because he didn't want Logan jumping to conclusions. And the only thing that we know for sure is that the Black kids took his belongings. And so here's my, my moment of irritation, because aside from the fact that they had, the ca- had to cast the two men who robbed Halsey as Black, I'm kind of annoyed that this is like the hundredth time we've heard them say the phrase like Black kids, like they've said it. Every 30 seconds in this episode so far. And I just feel like this is, there are people who have a lot of legitimate criticisms of like law and policing TV shows and how they really just reinforce existing stereotypes about people. And I feel like th- just the fact that they keep on talking about these black kids over and over and over just like reinforces the notion of like black criminality. And it's just so blatantly racist that I'm shocked i get. i don't know i shouldn't I know. be shocked but it's it's shocking
1: i i agree and i wanted to ask your opinion on this so when you see this sort of thing on yeah. the episodes we're watching specifically do you feel like it is intended to like shine a light on an existing issue in new york city and law enforcement
0: and like law and order I'm going to give them zero credit for attempting to do anything that like is progressive or attempting to like shine a light on racism in policing and the justice system. Uh, I I mean I think they do try that occasionally. I think it's pretty clumsy the way they do it, but yeah. definitely not in this episode. I think that just the you know they're they're playing on a lot of tropes of like black communities in the early nineteen nineties. Like I I don't think that they do anything to to trouble that narrative. Like they don't show one police off. Like sometimes they'll show like Logan or Greavy like being kind of racist, and the other one will sort of you know po- poke at that and point out that they're being racist but they definitely didn't do that in this episode and I think in the episodes that they do do that in you know it it, we don't get in any kind of like complex character development out of it and so I don't think even if they were trying to make us see different things about like perspectives on race they're not giving us enough to make that meaningful or purposeful like it appears idiosyncratic or like something that you know oh you pointed out i was racist in this moment okay great and now i'll now i'm fine like i've absolved myself of any potential future racism or the or the harms i've caused in the past with these perspectives like it's just i just don't think that the show is set up to do that kind of troubling of problematic narratives in that way so (laughs) i i agree i think that i i wanted to ask that because i kind of feel
1: like i'm giving them the benefit of the doubt in most of the episodes that that's what they're sort of trying to do, because I feel like this was like, it wasn't the first sort of like American police procedural sort of thing, but it was the first one with this sort of tone and in a long time. And I think most procedurals and media have, as we've seen today, when we look back have done a pretty piss poor job of portraying Mm -hmm. victims in general and yeah. law enforcement in like a more accurate light, and so right. I think that this show was created with that in mind. So I do think that they're trying, but I think that the word you used when you said clumsy is like the best word for it because yeah, I think by their by 1990s standards, it's attempting. I wouldn't say in this episode either. I think this episode is sort of like a. It's like they set up the devil's advocate but they keep them there, you know, mean? <laughs> they don't, yeah, they don't exactly. give you the other side in this episode so much, but I feel yeah. like in the other episodes they try and I think try. by, like, previous standards, Sometimes. it's clumsy. <laughs> yeah. And I think by today's standards, it would be, like,
0: really lazy. Really? Oh, for sure, yeah. I think if anybody does want to see, like, a police procedural type show that does do a pretty good job of talking about, like, racism and oppression within systems of policing, the, uh, I think it's Netflix. It's definitely on Netflix. I'm not sure if it was, like, a Netflix original. Uh, when they see us about the Exonerated Five and the Central Park uh, rape and assault of, oh, God gosh i'm forgetting her name oh okay well actually okay i feel better now because she wasn't named at the time so i'm just gonna leave that as it is then i think that show does a pretty good job of of really shining a light on how much race and racism influences the the criminal justice system in a much it. better way than law and order oh you haven't seen it no oh, wait, it's, it's heartbreaking yeah but it's really incredible okay <laughs> i'm gonna have to watch it um, yeah, it's really, really incredible. So definitely put it on your list. Yeah, definitely. So, da, 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 da. okay, so they go to check the councilman's car, uh, which you would have thought they would have done already, but hey, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the trunk of the car, they find a fur coat. And Logan apparently is some kind of expert in fur prices because Grievy asks him how much it would cost. And Logan uh, says that it must cost 12 and up. Which I was like, okay, what? Do, I wonder what that means. Like $1,200, twelve hundred, twelve thousand, and so then I googled the cost of fur coats, and it's definitely at least twelve thousand because the the prices that I was seeing today were closer to like forty and fifty thousand dollars for a fur coat. Who is out there buying fur coats for this
1: period? And with the oh my god, yeah, must
0: be forty thousand dollars. I know, honestly. $4,000 would change my life. (laughs) I just don't even, yeah. There are so many things I would spend $50,000 on. There's, yeah, I would never buy a fur coat to begin with. Okay. So then they go back to the police station and they're talking to Captain Cragen. And Captain Cragen is like fondling the fur coat and saying... Basically, that we can't ask the wife about the fur coat because if the guy does wake up and they've asked the wife about it and it's not hers. And so basically, he's implying that finding the answers to this case are less important than protecting the fact that this councilman might have been having an affair. Like, what ki- what kind of justice system is this? I know. I know. So Grievy is really working this, like, gumshoe aesthetic that he's aiming for in this episode smoking his cigar vibe uh and like he's in the middle of the the police room where all the phones are ringing all the time and he just really needs like a fedora and some like harsh lighting through like some like horizontal blinds on a window and he could like absolutely be in a film noir movie oh a hundred percent where is the magnifying glass where is the magnifying glass exactly <laughs> so apparently uh narcotics they hear that narcotics might have found one of the young men involved in the robbery and so they they head on down there and they see him being held in a cell with a a case of the quote yips which again is another thing i had to google and coincidentally the the phrase the yips is an episode of your favorite tv show of all time guess which one oh god if you're being sarcastic it's got
1: to be how i met your mother <laughs>
0: It's how I met your mother. Yeah, not
1: shocking that that show would name <laughs> one of their episodes "The Yips." Oh god, oh, that's
0: okay. so funny. The Yips. One day, one day you'll have to try it again, and maybe you'll fall in love. Uh... Anyway, in this (laughs) case, uh, the, uh, the young black man who they have arrested appears to be like coming down off of some kind of drug high. His name is Simonize and Logan kind of like slaps him around the head a few times, which I'm assuming is not acceptable conduct, but I'm also assuming happens probably pretty regularly. Yeah. And they're trying to press him for information But they can't really get anything out of him. And so they start to escort him back to his cell. And some dickhead in the hallway makes some comment about him, to which Simonias says, I didn't do nothing. And that dickhead replies, of course, because we always go around arresting people for no reason. Okay, like, the irony just writes itself in this episode. (laughs) Amen. That is actually often what you do. But hey, so... This guy, whoever he is, and he's one of those characters who I was like, I can't figure out who you are. He seems to know who Simonize's friend is, his friend Tremaine, and they always hang out together. So he's probably the other kid involved in the robbery. So then we cut to Grievy and Logan in an apartment building that looks really run down, and they are searching Simonize's apartment. And I, I think it's his mother, maybe, who's there. And she says, oh, Simon's done something really bad this time, huh? and logan pulls out the rolex in the in the shoe uh in one of simon eyes's shoes and it's the rolex of of councilman halsey
1: right and i just want to say they are so gingerly going through this apartment they're so gentle and like oh we're just yeah. looking don't worry and then even to the mom they're like yes ma'am we're just looking okay and they're like really kind to like a little girl in the hallway that's like are you the man but we know from everything we've seen that when most apartments i've seen after a search from like documentaries and things it's like torn apart with zero regard for anything and nothing back yeah. yeah. So that's, that's a nice, that's a nice story.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then we cut to a scene where Logan and Grievy are outside of a building and Logan tells Grievy, make lots of noise. And Grievy, like whips out his gun and runs into the building while Logan runs around to the backside toward the fire escape. And we hear Grievy yell, Tremaine Lewis, NYPD. And we see a young man running down the fire escape. And I don't know if uh, this was really included in the character backstory, but apparently Logan graduated from the Wiley Coyote School of Policing because as Tremaine is running by, Logan grabs a metal trash can lid and smacks him in the face with it. And little cartoon birds start swirling around his head. I thought you'd like that one. Oh my God. And then he reached into his pocket and
1: he pulled out a hammer that grew 20 times its size with the word Acme on it and then smacked him on top of the head. And a bump grew out of his head that went about four feet high. But it's okay because all he had to do was touch it with his finger and press it back down. And press it back
0: in. That's right. (laughs) That is cartoon science, everybody. I could not believe that they put this in the episode well and especially because we as as you see I, I watched this episode twice because I had to try to make sense of it mm-hmm. as Tremaine is running twor- away from Grievy unknowingly toward Logan he has a gun in his hand yes. and something tells me a police officer wouldn't see somebody with a gun in hand and go you know what I should do trash can lid right <laughs> right okay I couldn't I forgot about that part <laughs> don't know how <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's possibly the only good moment in this episode. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they are interrogating the two men, Tremaine and Simon Eyes, together, telling them that they're going to charge them with murder, too. Both of them claim to have done nothing. They uh, say that they basically came upon him and his throat was already cut when they got there, and they confessed to taking his belongings, but they say, we didn't attack him. And Simon Eyes says that it was the, quote, white cat in the bends which again i i've heard cat as a way to refer to another man before i don't think that's in contemporary lingo these days no uh but he he left as soon as the truck pulled off and grievy says what truck and then we cut to logan and grievy in in sort of a delivery yard near the uh or a trucking or shipping yard near the crime scene and they talk to a guy who is uh, dressed up for an audition for Newsies <laughs> and ask him about his his uh, late night. And the delivery guy says that he saw two men behind the Mercedes-Benz. They pop the trunk. One of them reaches in and hands the other guy a fur coat. And then they open the trunk of the Mercedes, put the fur in the Mercedes, and then both get in the Mercedes together. This whole fur thing. <laughs> The fur thing is a completely unnecessary plot device. Okay, here's the thing. The fur coat is like this weird plot device that you think the whole thing is going to center around, like maybe he was cheating on his wife and the wife found out and had him killed. Like, no, 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 no. The fur coat is like both a central plot device and a red herring throughout the whole episode. Because it amounts to nothing, but they spend 90% of the episode talking about this fucking fur coat.
1: Yes, and it's very right?
0: confusing. All the conversation yes. they're
1: having about the fur coat, how much it costs, where did it get it, why is it who, even there? Who made Why it? are they yeah. exchanging a fur coat in the middle of the night in a lot? What is the big deal? Who would yeah. even care if they saw a councilman receiving a fur coat and then they didn't see it on his, like, it just doesn't make any sense, and it's no. so focused on, and I was like, this has to be a key point in the actual crime. I'm just no, going to nope. spoil it right now in case it's anyone out there It's not at all. Like, what is this? Did you ever watch The Bone Collector, the movie? Oh my gosh, I think I did. I'm pretty sure I have. It's been a long time, but I always get The Bone Collector mixed up with... Oh, you know what? No, I always get it mixed up with Along Came a Spider for some reason, and I did not see The Bone Collector.
0: Okay, The Bone Collector is a... I thought it was an excellent movie, For it's an it's an hour and 58 minutes long. And I would say for an hour and 45 of those minutes, it's really good. And then at the end, it's like a it's like a murderer, they're trying to catch the murderer type thing. And then at the end, they introduce a random character that you had seen for two seconds. And they're like, Oh, that's the murderer. Like it was just so anticlimactic and and like not connected to the first hour and 45 minutes of the movie that you're like it's so unsatisfying that you're like wow that was really shitty writing like you didn't even make this worth my time and that's very much how the fur coat feels to me <laughs> <laughs> well anyway spoiler alert <laughs> sorry oh yeah if you haven't seen the bone collector which came out in <laughs> 1991 hold on. uh, probably no probably like 1998 1999 so it's only 21 years old so spoiler alert if you're still catching up on movies from 21 years ago
1: and you know what as someone who hates spoilers i have to say if you did get that spoiled for you and you have any type of feeling about it when someone says at the end just fast forward (laughs) you don't like
0: spoilers (laughs) yeah (laughs) your fault (laughs) okay so they, Greavy and Logan head to a furrier to talk about the coat because they're trying to get a sense of like there's no tags on the coat. It doesn't say who it's belong who it belongs to. So they're trying to figure out where it came from, and what it could have to do with this crime. And so they're talking to the furrier, who basically says there's lots of varieties of different coats, and so you know, and different qualities. And Greavy holds up the coat and says, this is the scene that made me furious. He said, so is this coat more of a Meryl Streep or a Whoopi Goldberg? And the furrier says, more the latter, I'm afraid, and proceeds to describe how it's this low quality thing. It's it's flashy, but it's basically trash. So just again, in the continuing disgusting racism of this episode, we not only get an an element of like just comparing two women Again, like pitting two women against each other to compare their quality. But we also get this like added element of racism blended in with this misogyny. So fuck the writer who wrote this. And that writer is Dick Wolf, who is the creator of the <laughs> series. So fuck you, Dick Wolf. <laughs> Honestly, I,
1: I was so put off by that, that statement. And so was Davy. We were like, we had to pause and like talk about it for a second because yeah. I was like, I can't believe That this would have been allowed to be written, even in 1990. If I were Whoopi Goldberg, I would be
0: furious, right?
1: And I was trying to think, like 1990, Whoopi Goldberg was doing role like big roles, so it's not even like they were saying she's not like a um, a famous actress. Well known of an actress, yeah. I would say she did like more comedies. And I was wondering if that's what they're trying to say, like, oh, this is like a knockoff because like Meryl Streep is doing serious films and Whoopi Goldberg is doing comedy. I don't know. I, I, but even if that was like a, a fake excuse, I can come up with. And then I was like, oh, well, she wore fake coat, uh, fake fur and like ghost maybe. No, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping Jack Flash. Even, no matter what I say, even if that was what they were going for, it would be tone deaf or ridiculous to then pick a black actress and a white actress and then put them against each other and then say that the black actress was being compared to something low quality so like even in the best case scenario it's still like what are you doing it's foul how did that not go on the cutting room floor but we're watching like icing my cookies
0: (laughs) yes So the furrier sends them to what we're, I think, meant to see as a, a lower rate for shop or coat maker to kind of track down where this coat came from. And they ask him if it's his coat, and he says it's possible, but he doesn't recognize every coat. And through some kind of weird cop telepathy, they decide that he's lying and start to kind of like intimidate him and, and get more information out of him. So they ask who bought this coat, and he said it was a gift. And so they ask him what kind of car he drives and he says I think I should give my lawyer a call and Logan's like yeah why don't you go ahead and do that and while you're at it I'll make a call to the fire department because I see that those furs are blocking some extinguishers and Greavy's like yeah I should call the the building I don't know maintenance not building maintenance but building inspector I think I saw some building violations so the guy is like okay 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 uh, the name is Tony Scalisi, which is apparently somebody who is from the Muscucci family, which I think we're meant to interpret as like a, a sort of mob family. Yeah. And so the furrier is worried about what happens to him if Tony finds out. So they go and get a warrant for Tony Scalisi, and we see Robinette for the first time. And Robinette says that Stone is willing to file charges against Scalisi, but it's a reach. And Greedy says gre- – sorry, Greevy. My autocorrect changes Greevy to Greedy, and <laughs> it's still fine. Ariana so Grande says, <laughs> Greedy! So he says, I've put away a lot of guys on circumstantial evidence. Wow, just throw that right out there, apparently. Like, that's something to be proud of, I guess. Yeah. So they go to pick up Scalise, and they see him walking a pit bull. And so they draw their guns, and Greevy says – if he drops the leash, shoot the dog first. Ugh. Which is gross because pit bulls are little angels and people are monsters who abuse them. Sick of this. I'm so yeah. sick of that. Poor pities. So they pick up Scalise and then there's a courtroom scene where Scalise pleads not guilty. And despite trying to get him held without bail, the judge doesn't want to do that and sets the bail at $100,000. And then EDA, EADA Stone and ADA Robinette talk about how it's weird that Scalise's lawyer had like contacted them wanting to plea deal Because the evidence in the case is pretty light and circumstantial. So, like, why would he want to plea when the only eyewitness evidence they've got shows that the last time Scalise was seen with him, seen with uh, Halsey, the victim, he was fine? So then we're meant to believe that uh, it sounds like the defense attorney is trying to work the judge's calendar so that they get a sympathetic judge and can hopefully get the case either dismissed or, you know, lower charges or whatever.
1: I thought that was kind of interesting that they they brought something like that up because I was wondering like what they were going for there. And then when they said that, I was like, oh, you know what? I bet that happens all the time. And I really I only ever thought of that when I was like listening to Serial back in the day and they were doing like that courtroom series. Oh, yeah. Um,
0: Season three, I think.
1: Yeah. And then I was like, oh, wow. I never really thought about these sort of like political type of playing the justice system. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of cool that
0: they actually included that. I think it would have been cool if this wasn't a kitchen sink episode, because it was like, (laughs) I feel like the whole time I was trying to figure out, like, what am I supposed to be paying attention to? Because you're throwing, like, a hundred different things at me, and I can't make sense of it. Yeah, it was like a wasted... (laughs) <laughs> a yeah, that moment. whole scene was not necessary to the plot, but hey. Okay, so then we get to a scene in the wife's apartment and Robinette and Stone are questioning her and um, ask if she recognizes the name Scalise because they think that he's responsible for the attack on her husband. And she says, a black boy named Scalise? And Robinette does his best to prevent rolling his eyes. And he just like has this facial expression is that, that I interpret as a silent prayer, not to slap all the white people in the room. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But then he asks like, what's your coat size? And she says, it's a 12. And so then they, they take the lawyer aside and basically are like, Hey, this fur coat is an eight. So this fur coat is not for the wife. Who is it for? And after much, hemming and hawing the that family lawyer guy says that uh councilman halsey was i guess interested in or seeing seeing or cheating on his wife with um a woman named alicia henson who works at a department store and robinette walks in and says alicia henson and her hair is incredible it really is if you can go back and find this episode it's worth it just to see her hair because it is pinnacle like turn of the 90s hair it's perfection it is and she does the chunkiest <laughs> gold jewelry on like oh, yeah. ch- like like orbs of gold hanging off of her ears <laughs> but she says to robinette i've been expecting you uh, and then why we don't know because it fades away to another scene right <laughs> And it was a really long pause before she said that too. She like yes. looked, she asked a question like
1: what's this about? And then when they say what it? Is, like who it's about? She like sort of like pauses, looks
0: around, does a really uncomfortable pause.
1: I've been expecting you.
0: Yeah. Uh so uh, then we go to EADA Stone at, the, at a bar with the defense attorney, and he's asking him everything he knows about Chuck Halsey because apparently uh, Councilman Halsey was responsible for collecting the money for unpaid parking tickets, which I guess is in theory a big job. So they talk about how he had contracted outside help to collect the fees for parking tickets, and that was a company called Carnegie Collections. Sounds weird to me, but Mm -hmm. sure. And then we cut back to Robinette because this is just a frenetic episode with terrible editing. Mm, Really bad. And Robinette, really bad. And Robinette is back to talking about Alicia, the woman who has been expecting him. (laughs) And he says she has expensive taste. And when she first heard about uh, Chuck Halsey's death, she thought it might have been attempted suicide because he had been subpoenaed to testify on a federal grand jury uh, to a federal grand jury uh, about municipal corruption. And apparently her apartment is leased to Carnegie Collections, and she wears a size eight coat. So I I think we're meant to believe that all of this money and everything she's kind of living on is ill-gotten goods from his corruption and, I guess, skimming off the top or something. Dirty money. Dirty money. <laughs> and then there's some weird subplot between ADA Robinette and like a senior black councilman that... Again, it was just weirdly superficial, but he had tension about, like, going after somebody who was, like, the senior most ranking Black man in politics. It's not explored in sufficient detail, but they throw it in there anyway. Yeah, in this scene is why I asked that question earlier,
1: because Uh I feel like they were using Robinette's character to sort of, like, look at some issues of racism, and so that's why I was sort of wondering, like, how you sort of saw this playing out, because... I thought it was interesting that they were, like, doing this, like, other side of it where, you know, Robinette is, like, conflicted because someone that he, you know, potentially looked up to, or he says, I think, at one part, like, oh, I,
0: I looked up to that guy. I was a, I'm a lawyer because of him. Yeah.
1: yeah, like, to see someone that he sort of
0: got into the game because of if they had made the episode less about the fur coat and more about robinette's relationship with that councilman that would have been interesting but they didn't do that
1: yeah and just to be clear i'm specifically speaking about just the um internal conflict robinette is having not necessarily the implications that they're making but you know that sort of like internal conflict like oh how do i look at this man and how do i look at
0: my chosen profession now you know but yeah. Anyway, continue. So now Stone is talking to Scalisi and basically trying to get him to give up other names involved in this corruption scheme, uh, or else he's gonna try Scalisi for attempt the attempted murder of Chuck Halsey. And then while they're in the middle of this conversation, I forget who walks in, but somebody says that the hospital just called and that Councilman Halsey had died just a half an hour ago. So now this is a a murder case. And so Scalisi starts trying to persuade Stone to give him immunity in exchange for the names of the people involved, but Stone says no, that if he doesn't give up the name of who in the Muscucci family ordered all of this to happen and kind of spearheaded this corruption, there's no deal. So now basically Stone is strong arming him into wearing a wire to get more information on the Muscucci family, which if you've listened to like any true crime stories where you know somebody gets arrested for a minor crime. And then suddenly has to like wear a wire to like get more higher up people arrested. Super dangerous. Yeah. And that's why it's
1: always depicted as something super risky to have like a civilian do versus like an undercover agent because it exactly. puts them at too great of a risk. Obviously, like that's not even like law and that's like common sense.
0: Yeah. Uh, Stone and Robinette head over to the US Attorney's Office and it's William H. Macy. So we uh, actually have our first famous guest star. Big time big time. I love William H Macy. Love do you watch I'm a him huge on shameless face.
1: A huge face. Huge fan. Um yes, I do. I'm I haven't seen all of Shameless because I don't have the channel, but uh but now I can watch it. But yes, I love Shameless. I loved Fargo. I just I just love him in everything. Yeah. He's a great actor. He's a great character
0: actor actually. Speaking of character he actors, is actually for me to you say yeah. that. Yeah. So they're asking him for an FBI surveillance team to surveil the Miscucci family and Scalisi and he agrees and they release to the press that Scalisi was not involved or they're they're dropping all the charges against him as a ploy to make Scalisi seem safe, I guess, to to talk to because he's no no longer under threat of investigation. And so Scalisi's lawyer tells Robinette and Stone that he's going to bring them to a meeting with kind of the top people involved in the corruption. So then we cut to The Sting, which is at a restaurant, uh, but the the men are across the street in what appears to be a very conveniently located abandoned building to to (laughs) surveil this Sting operation from. (laughs) and we see that a number of high ranking councilmen are there at the at this uh this dinner and so they name like three names and these are the the senior councilmen who are involved in this municipal corruption and just when scalisi is like getting the confessions out of these three councilmen a gunman walks in and opens fire killing scalisi then we kind of cut to stone making his opening comments to the jury of the trial of of all three councilmen and then something happens at the end that's kind of like the end of the episode but something happens at the end of the episode that i'm actually going to wait to talk about until after you tell the the true crime story because i think it could spoil the ending of yours so i don't want to say it yet oh okay so that's that's the uh truly the pilot episode, but episode in airing order number six of Law and Order, everybody's favorite Bagman. And it was terrible. It was terrible. When I said at the start of this episode that I knew it was gonna be great, it was
1: because not because the episode was great. It was really rough. It was really rough. Yes. <laughs> but very. I knew because it was so rough of an episode, it would be a great episode for
0: us. <laughs> yep.
1: So great job. Thank you. <laughs> um wow so do you know did you
0: look up what the crime was or did you know what it was i think i when i was looking at Bagman, i somehow ended up on the wikipedia page not the like law and order wiki but the wikipedia page for this episode oh, and right. i yeah i saw something but it didn't really like give me much details but i'm i'm sensing it's about political corruption in some way yeah when
1: i when i looked it up i i didn't know what it was um i'd heard of like an element of this, like an element of this, but I didn't really know much about this uh, at all. So it was new Hmm. for me too, but it is a big deal. And it was a big story. So um, you ready to dive right in? I'm ready to rock and roll. Ooh. (laughs) Well, okay. So let me tell you this, this episode was inspired by the 1986 New York parking violations bureau corruption scandal that and riveted that, already. <laughs> that is a that is a <laughs> mouthful but i will say um well let me say my sources first before i forget so okay. uh, of course wikipedia and i also accidentally went to that wikipedia page for the Bagman episode mm, and i mm-hmm. yeah so i know what you're talking about so the wikipedia the law and order wiki um i read a bunch of articles so i was very disappointed not to find any videos to watch because i love a video to watch yeah. <laughs> for research but i, I tried but anyway, so there's a Daily News article, uh, a New York Daily News article from 1999 by Kieran O'Leary, two articles from the New York Times, 1986 and 87, both by Richard Meislin, who I assume was following, covering the um, the scandal at the time, a mm-hmm. UPI article by um, Sina Gresson from uh, 1986. A Queen's Chronicle article from 2018 and a New York Magazine article from 2012, which was by Mark Jacobson and was really, I think it was pretty well written and it was very helpful for some new information. So big shout out to Mark Jacobson because I was having a hell of a time finding out what is going on now.
0: (laughs) What happened? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Everything
1: I was finding was from like 1986 while it was happening. So I had to pay very close attention to the dates on all of my articles to see where It was because the story is not exactly linearly reported either. So, okay. Um, while the story was sort of like, Oh,
0: sorry. My (laughs) phone just started making noise
1: while the story was like a big, are you,
0: did you do that on purpose? I didn't. I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't know what's happening. Okay.
1: Oh my gosh. So while this story was a big deal, um, it's not like the tr- traditional type of crime story that we will probably be covering or that I would go for. Um, there's no murder, but there is a tragic death. There's deception. Mm. Yeah, there's political intrigue. Is there intrigue. a fur coat? Because that's really what I'm in it there's for. There's not a single fur coat or anything like it. Chunky gold jewelry? No. Dynasty hair? Nothing? Okay. I'm sure there was dynasty hair, but I... <laughs> actually there is some dynasty hair. I... I, I uh, pulled some pictures from some of the articles I was doing so that we'd have some stuff to post when we post this episode, you'll okay. see some good, good hair. Yeah. So it's, it is interesting. And I will say I prefaced this a lot in my notes saying like, okay, just bear with me. But actually, as I read more about <laughs> it, it it was more interesting than I thought it was. Okay. It's definitely, um, not in my wheelhouse. So I actually looked up other stories from this time period at first, like, Oh, maybe I should do something else. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: You're like, maybe we should just uh skip you this know but altogether. then
1: <laughs> as i was doing that i was like i'm sure there will be episodes we have where there actually is no specific true crime so yeah. i'm just gonna save the one i looked up for another day and just get into it so i'm sure we're gonna have a lot of corrections from this because like i said i don't know anything about politics i don't know jack crap (laughs) about, (laughs) about politics, to be honest. Like it's a, it's a topic I'm not really comfortable talking about in my everyday life because I'm not super like learned on it. Yeah. Just
0: bear with me and correct me later. I mean, politics are really, really complicated. Like the, the workings of the political system are unbelievably complicated. So I think there's a difference between not caring about politics and not necessarily knowing the inner workings of it. Exactly. I do care. I do
1: care, but I just don't. I'm uncomfortable
0: as I, I hope lots of
1: listeners can relate to this because I just, you know, whenever topics of, of politics come up, I'm obviously very interested. I'm obviously very in, um, invested, invested. Yeah. And I obviously have a candidate that I am, I'm obviously not voting for Trump. And so I, I care, but I do don't feel comfortable being like part of the um conversation. I'm more of a listener because I need yeah. to learn more before I start yeah. spouting off and sounding like one of the idiots I hate on social media who like says a lot but says very little. <laughs> Talks yeah, a lot but yeah. says a little, like I'm yeah. doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> but in any event, that's just the preface to say I am not a political commentator. I'm not Wendy on Potomac. So Oh, my God. Let's start with the uh, the key player of this. It's um, Donald Maines is his name. He's, uh, he was born in Brooklyn in the 1930s, and he was an up-and-comer in the New York political world by his mid-20s. He is the, um, or at the time, at least, he was the youngest ADA in Queens history. He hmm. was 27, and he was the youngest city council member at 31 in 1965. By 1971, he was selected specifically by the Democratic Party to replace Sidney Levis as Queens borough president. And so I needed to pause for a second because I've never even heard of what a borough president was, and I'm from Mm -hmm. New Jersey. (laughs) So (laughs) um, yeah, so for those out there who don't know, New York City is separated into five boroughs, and this is all taking place in and around Queens so there's Manhattan, Brooklyn, the Bronx, Queens and Staten Island and although i like i said i'm from new jersey like 20 minutes outside of new york city loud and proud <laughs> i did not have any sort of like love affair with new york city until like m- much later in life like my mid 20s <laughs> yeah so not an expert here but each borough evidently has a president, and I read that their like role has been greatly diminished over time, like what they oh. are in charge of, but they still exist. And this is straight from Wikipedia, what a borough president is. The borough president primarily acts as a spokesman, advocate, and ceremonial leader for the borough. They have budgets from which they can allocate relatively modest sums of money to community organizations and projects, and they appoint members of the 59 largely advisory community boards in the city's various neighborhoods. So there it is.
0: <laughs> and, and what's the name of this guy?
1: He is Ronald Maines. Okay. Okay. I'm just going to, I'm taking notes
0: so that I don't lose track of who people are. Yes.
1: Cause there's a few names in here. They're important because they're all involved. So Ronald Maynes and he, uh, so that's what he does. You know, he's appointed as the borough president. And, um, the most important thing I found out about the borough president is that they are referred to, um, like colloquially as the beep. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm officially running for borough president. I want yeah. that so bad. How, who doesn't want to be the beep? Oh, jeez. That's amazing.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah. That was the thing I would have expected. They should have sent you the whole lone Order episode around the term beep, and beep. we would have been yes. way better off. Way better. The other piece of information to know about this to give some kind of context is that Queens is the largest of these five boroughs, and it is the most okay. ethnically diverse. Um, okay. One article said it was the most ethnically diverse... County or area in the country. Oh, so not sure how valid that is, but and the population of Queens alone was 2.2 million in 2019, which was more than a quarter of the population of all five boroughs combined. So, wow, yeah, pretty big place, Queens. I don't really know why Fran Fine ever left to go work at the Sheffield's, but you know, Queens is. I've been there many times, um mainly because the airports that service New York are in Queens. Or New York City or in Queens. And
0: uh it's not the my favorite place. I'm really fighting back the urge to do a Fran Rush impersonation <laughs> right now. <laughs> Why fight it? Maybe it'll
1: pop up as a surprise later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Maines was basically by 1986, after um multiple reelections to the same seat, he was viewed as the second most popular or second most powerful, I guess, pop politician in New York at the time. And yeah, and everyone was saying he was a likely candidate to take over for mayor whenever Ed Koch resigned or got replaced. The, um, the two of them, by the way, Ed Koch and Maines, had developed a very close friendship during their time in politics, and it's very well known. Was it sexual? I mean, it's not implied, but, I mean, anything could happen, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he he, he— he wants to get that beep-D. He does. If he knew that Ed Koch would one day serve on the People's Court, which is the only thing I know him from, <laughs> he could have got some of that People's Court money down the line if he had just been patient. Maybe. But no, they were really good friends. And so it's just known by everybody that they sort of support each other's careers. It's benefited the both of them. And so he's a he's a really big deal, even though his position doesn't hold a lot of power. It holds a lot of financial sort of allocated power just before um, 2 a.m. on January 10th, 1986, two officers come across the bloody, barely lucid mains swerving to a stop in, in his car just off the Grand Central Parkway. He'll go on to say, when questioned about this, that two hoodlums had kidnapped and attacked him, giving him orders of where to drive. And he had slashes to his uh, Y-shaped slashes to his left wrist and had wounds on his left ankle and was bleeding to death, basically, in the car. Nobody seemed to really believe his story, even the cops on the scene, despite who he was. And so there are like multiple sources throughout what I read of different friends and um, people he knew in in politics, basically letting him know it's okay to tell the truth. Like, hey, if you were seeing somebody else, no one's going to judge you. No one's going to ask why so you that's were. A lie. Yeah, right? <laughs> like everyone in every, the, every one of the articles I read had some version of that. And so a few days afterwards, um, he said and puts out a statement and I quote, there were no assailants and no one but me is to blame. So hmm. he says it was a suicide attempt.
0: On his ankle?
1: Well, I think, I don't know what the ankle wound is. I read about the ankle wound. It's never mentioned again, but everyone sort of just talks about the wrist, the wrist yeah. wound. So yeah. I imagine that the ankle wound, it doesn't say it's a slash. I imagine it has something to do with the way he was driving after he cut his wrist or his wrist was allegedly cut by himself. So huh. okay. I don't know. So at the same time in the press that all this is happening, this is sort of going to give some kind of context to what might've led to this and what the climate around politics in queens was at the time so the public was now discovering through various uh, forms of news media that there was a scandal afoot in their local and state government and i thought scandal in politics can you believe shocking have you heard (laughs) i
0: can't believe it why there's a scandal afoot
1: (laughs) Uh, you need a gumshoe detective on this with a cigar in his mouth
0: (laughs) send in (laughs) Greavy.
1: So um here's more what's being uncovered amid this suicide attempt. Um at this time, Jeffrey I'm going to I'm going to butcher these names. Jeffrey Lindenauer Lindenauer Linden Sure. Yeah, let's go with I'm going to say Lindenauer. Jeffrey Lindenauer was exposed as Maine's bagman at the Parking okay. Violations Bureau. He had allegedly over time collected bribes totaling more than $400,000. That's a lot of money in 1986 or whatever. Yeah, this is a lot of money. And I imagine I I won't even... In today's money? Yeah, I won't even venture to guess what it would be in today's money. Because like I said, I'm living in a world where $4,000 will change my life. (laughs) Honestly. (laughs) So I don't even know. But it's a lot of money. and so I'll, I'll look
0: it up while you continue with the story. Thank you.
1: A lot of dirty money, at least. So lindenauer was running a psychotherapy institute at the time that the daily news article i read about it said was quote based on two phony doctoral degrees he had bought from a diploma mill (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) it sounds like a real quack i guess and i thought wow the shade of it all so him and Maine's are just buddies they're not Colleagues, they're really good friends, and this is what lindenauer's Nower's history is. But somehow he's able to get a high-paying job as director
0: at the Parking Violations Bureau. The remains. Yes, that's about a million dollars today. Ooh. It's a lot in bribes. A million dollars in bribes. Yeah, that's a lot. A lot. And so, I mean, any money in bribes is a lot for a politician. But hey, hello. Just the the term bribes.
1: Let's let's start there. Like anything, a million dollars. I would dream love to, uh, you know what I get mad at when people tell you, um, oh, why would you go on it? Like when people criticize like the, uh, winnings you get on game shows and reality shows because they're going to be taxed and it's like a million dollars, you're only going to get $400,000, whatever. Uh,
0: I'll take it. That's 400,000. I don't have. So
1: yeah. Boo hoo. So they're, they're good friends. He's got, he gets his friend this, you know, job he's not qualified for in the parking violations bureau. And the reason it sounds so dull, like parking violations, um, parking violations and traffic ticket collections, especially in New York city make up f- is like the most lucrative department, um, like legislate, I'm going to use the wrong words, but the most like lucrative, like sort of legislative department, like they get most of the city's money back. Right. Like a lot of the city's income is from the parking violations. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so massive. And so that's why it is such a big deal. Okay. So in 1978, Maine's urged for Lester Shaffron Chaffron. To be made director and Lindenauer to now be made his deputy. So now Maines' sort of crew is all in charge over there. And he's got he's got people in the we're, I'm just gonna call it PvB now, the parking violations bureau. Violations, violations bureau. <laughs> yeah. PvB.
0: Or PvB or... <laughs> overseen by the beep.
1: <laughs> exactly. PVB on the beep on the ones and twos. <laughs> <laughs> PvB in the beep. So we got uh we got the the PVB is stacked in Maine's favor now. In yeah. seventy nine, they took their first known bribe from Datacom consultant Michael Lazar and oh, Datacom. I love Datacom. Do you know Datacom? I have no idea. Oh, I was like, is. wow.
0: Okay, you know that's a company that like doesn't exist anymore, or it got like no, eaten it does by IBM or something. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, they were known as a company that was aggressively pursuing pocket ticket fines oh. from people in exchange for. They were known as a company that, I guess a collections agency, but they were known for being pretty aggressive. And okay. what they did was, they the bribe was that they, in exchange for contracts with the Bureau, they gave $500 in cash monthly to Mainz and Lindenauer. And by the, the fourth year, it was it had been boosted to getting $2,500 a month. Wow. Yeah. They split it half and half. How nice. In 1980, Bernard Sandow... And all the names I'm saying are important. So in 1980, Bernard Sandow of Systematic Recovery Systems, another sort of collections agency, um, agreed on a bribe of 5% on all commissions, which by 1984 amassed over $300,000. So this wow. is where they got most of their bribery uh, money from. Okay. In 1982, they attempted to sort of work another um scheme and they got stanley they met stanley friedman who worked for um a company called city source or he didn't work for city source he was in communications with a company called city source because they had supposedly invented a handheld computer that can print out tickets can you imagine the the technology (laughs) it must it must have been so big and gray and square and clunky it was so okay so the technology itself was so big and clunky the idea of it that the scheme fell apart because they couldn't mm. produce the machine
0: <laughs> of course yeah
1: <laughs> so it totally fell through but they were still all sort of in contact with each other because the scheme would have bought all three so mains lindenauer and uh friedman it would have bought them all fifty-seven thousand shares of stock in city source hmm. well i guess that was good it didn't go through though since city have you heard of it Nope. Exactly. So, <laughs> unfortunately for everybody involved, like I said, the deal fell through. So they all continued to rake in this money, um, Mains and, and Linda Maurer, through their other schemes and briberies. But unfortunately for everyone involved, they didn't know. Sandow of SRS, that collections agency, Uh huh. he was involved in a corruption scheme in Chicago as well at the same time. And this was uncovered, and then everything began unraveling. And so Sandow, when he got busted for the Chicago deal, um, cooperated with prosecutors and began talking about the New York situation. Mm -hmm. And so it was after this that the suicide attempt took place.
0: Okay. So this is when Ronald Maines was like discovered driving around recklessly. Exactly. So all of this
1: was happening in the media prior to January 10th. And on January 10th is when the suicide attempt took place. and then. The few days afterwards is when the confession came that he it was a suicide attempt and not a um where he was picked picked up and by the way in this crime they mentioned no mention of race whatsoever I don't know if it was mentioned at the time and that's why they mm-hmm. had borrowed they did use the term hoodlums a lot yeah but they never mentioned race or what he alleged so I don't know mm-hmm. if okay. he said that
0: or not but so that could have just been a, a law and order addition pres- to make it it could have been like the fur coat. more TV exactly yeah. but. <laughs> Just just joke. to be fair. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Okay, so on January 23rd, columnist Jimmy Breslin, I mentioned him because I've heard that name before. I think he was a really famous journalist, I think. I didn't really look too deep into it, but I've heard that name before, and it's mentioned in all yeah. the articles. So he published an article that had Head of Parking Collections confessing to paying $36,000 to Maine specifically. And on February 11th, he ends up resigning from his seat and his assistant is put in charge of borough presidency. <laughs> okay. Um Ed Koch, his old friend and current mayor at the time is quoted in many different places being super super disappointed in him. He publicly expresses expresses. He publicly expresses his disgrace and keep saying how betrayed he is by his friends like super super against it and super super unaware supposedly this allegedly is sort of when signs of mains's depression start to becoming more noticeable to people and mm. however it is known that um we have people close to him that following the suicide attempt he had been seeing a psychiatrist and had been diagnosed with depression and was starting to take antidepressants but had a difficult time taking what was prescribed to him because he had really bad heart condition.
0: I'm really confused that this is, is really just being treated as a suicide attempt, though, because it seems really bizarre to attempt suicide and then get in your car and start driving around.
1: Right. It's it's very strange. They never really explain what his state of mind was around that suicide yeah. attempt. It's really strange. But I, hmm. I don't know what if it was a suicide attempt indeed. I don't know if his intention was to, like, if he like, thought of it in the car, because he was so panicked. Because the, yeah. the idea is, what everyone is saying, including him, was that everything that was coming out in the press, his s- sort of whole life was unraveling. And he saw the writing on the wall, and that's why he you know attempted suicide, right? Yeah, okay. Agreed, though. That is a strange detail. Like I said, he had been diagnosed with depression by a psychiatrist, and he had taken antidepressants. But he couldn't take them anymore, because even on the night of the suicide attempt, he, um, when he went to the hospital, he had suffered a heart attack afterwards oh wow yeah a mild heart attack and so he he was also on heart medication and so he couldn't take this the antidepressants that were prescribed and so he was working on it but not taking them because he was afraid Hmm. yeah and so on january let's see march 13th so this all happened in january he resigns in February and steps down. And on March 13th, he took a call from his psychiatrist and he was discussing additional care options with them. And there's a lot of different reports of how this happened. Some say that his wife was on the phone with a psychiatrist and then he picked up the three way call to sort of like start talking to them both about what they were talking about. Or yeah. they were saying that he was on the phone and his wife was just like listening in known to him but like listening. In, okay. Cause this is back in the day of like, everyone's got a house, multiple house phones <laughs> and they're all listening yeah. on the same line.
0: <laughs> they're on the party line. Yeah.
1: So the most believable and concise and consistent story is that he was sort of manic. Um, he was having mm-hmm. some sort of episode. So this led to the wife calling the psychiatrist on his behalf because he okay. was so freaked out and she's discussing yeah. with him what they should do. And he is agreed to go to, um, To what they're calling a mental hospital, which I think we would not use that term anymore. Like a psychiatric facility, I guess is more. I guess so. Yeah. So they're talking about that. And he is downstairs with his 25-year-old daughter sort of pacing. And when they, they come up with a plan, they get him on the phone. He picks up the line and he starts talking to the psychiatrist and the wife is listening in too. Yeah. Okay. The daughter sort of feels like, okay, I'm... You know, this is freaking me out, and I'm comfortable now. He's on the phone. We got, this is what they wanted, you know? The plan was to get him on the phone with the psychiatrist, and she was watching yep. him until that time. She goes upstairs to talk to the mother and say, like, okay, he's, you know, he's calmed he's down. On he's on the phone. Yeah. Um, while he's on the phone with the psychiatrist and his wife, uh, the psychiatrist's doorbell rings, and he has to put him on hold for a second. And so, so he's on hold with the psychiatrist at this time. And at this time, Mains takes out an eighteen-inch kitchen knife from his drawer and stabs himself in the heart. Oh my god! Yeah, like it's a fourteen. While he's on hold, while he's on hold, talking to the psychiatrist in the scene, the daughter had just went upstairs. He stabs himself in the heart with a fourteen-inch knife, eight-inch blade, and um, his daughter finds him on the ground, uh, in the kitchen. Wow. Yeah, he's bleeding profusely, obviously. Um, There's different reports about whether the wife was still on the phone. She comes downstairs. She removes the knife from him. The ambulance gets there. They take him the I don't think hospital. you're supposed to do that. I don't think you're <laughs> supposed to either, but in her defense, I don't know what I would do. I mean, what do you do, you know? Yeah, I mean, you, I think you kind of like freak out and do things you shouldn't be doing, yeah. probably. Yeah. So they get him to the hospital, and he's pronounced dead. So, oh my gosh. I mean, I know he's a you know he didn't do great things but just it's so it's sad challenging
0: to say things like that out loud and not feel away you know yeah i mean it's like sure he was involved in this corruption scandal but a we don't know what drove him there b like clearly he was not somebody who was well right. physically and in this period mentally so it's 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 sad i think yeah right so he's pronounced dead, and all of this
1: goes, you know, it's big in the press, and it's, it's all just confirming all of the allegations against all the people he was involved with. And so in March and April after his death, um, one after another, the other men involved that, we've, that I've quoted before, that I've named earlier, begin to get their indictments. And so yeah. Friedman, Lazar, and Shafran specifically, um, as well as Marvin Kaplan, who we haven't talked about, but he is the chairman of CitySource. So he is okay. sort of the guy in charge where, I guess, Shafran, I think it was, works. They all come under fire, and they're all found guilty and ra- of racketeering, conspiracy, and mail for our charges, carrying really lengthy prison sentences if they're all sentenced to the maximum and yeah isn't that what
0: they like put jimmy hoffa away with is racketeering or tax evasion i think
1: so. yeah i think racketeering yeah and i didn't even know what racketeering was until i this. still don't yeah. know in my mind it's something that pirates do with me <laughs> in my mind it's something that serena and uh <laughs> venus williams do on the tennis court <laughs> racketeering <Yeah>. got it and <laughs> uh, racket joke. <laughs> So that's the potential jail time of all of these things. Um, and fun fact is that Rudy Giuliani served as prosecutor during these, um, during the federal trial for all of this, would we
0: call that a fun fact?
1: It's a fact. It's a fact. (laughs) It's an interesting fact. (laughs) Okay. His meager beginnings, his beginnings when, you know, maybe, maybe he had uh, a little bit more. Yes. That's the word I'm looking for. (laughs) So yes. So here's what they all actually receive. And, and, um, Carry out. So Lazar received three years um, and a $200,000 fine. Shafran got three years, two and a half of which were suspended. So I assume that means he didn't serve them. Yeah. And a $48,000 fine to the city to repay some of the bribe. And Kaplan got four years and was fined $250,000. The heaviest sentence was given to Friedman and he got 12 years. He was sentenced to 12 years and barred from politics for the rest of his career afterwards. Um, Hmm. It was like two, he got a lot of sentences, but they all ran concurrently.
0: So he got two 12-year sentences and I think two five-year sentences. Wouldn't it be interesting if we, you know, did things like that? Like, say, if somebody was a, like, impeached, for example, like Mm. saying, no, you can't run for this office again. Right, right. Because that that would seem logical to me. Because your character is in question. Right. Yeah, I wish I had written down the
1: quote from the judge. I really wish I had, but it was basically that. He basically says yeah. like, these terms are going to be served concurrently for you, you're welcome, only if you are agree to not work in politics forever afterwards. Yeah. Otherwise, I think the other 12-year sentence could have run afterwards. Yeah. So he agrees and he serves. How many years do you think he serves out of the 12? I'm going to say one and a half. Uh, Okay. So it was a little worse than that. He serves four. (laughs) Okay. Um, But four was the minimum. So, Uh, you know, and last anyone heard about him, he's a hotelier, hotelier. No.
0: (laughs) Hotelier.
1: Yeah. Still alive. He's been a hotelier in at least three different states. Last heard Mm -hmm. of in Miami. Yeah, I read a little article that he uh, that he's quoted in, but I don't think it's important, so I didn't include anything else about these people because, really, this is about the crime, and although he's not a victim of the crime, he's the victim of a... He's the victim of a few things, you know? Uh Mains, I would say. No, Friedman, oh, Friedman yeah, yeah, yeah. is kind of a D-bag, I feel like, you know? Um, <laughs> kind of a D-bag. You know, I feel like these guys are all sort of D-bags in general, but I feel like, yeah. uh, obviously, Mains suffers the heaviest sentence and he although i'm sure you know a d-bag you know a dirty politician in all (laughs) by all accounts you know it is he is the victim of a lot of other things he's the victim of a few broken systems out there um not limited to i guess healthcare and the way mental health was looked at and the amount of uh focus that was put on things that he clearly was suffering from
0: but yeah, I mean, not to excuse mental him. health care in the late 80s was like the the dark ages by comparison to where we are today. Right, so. Exactly. The, um,
1: the silver lining is that the scandal served as a catalyst for the creation of the campaign finance board in 1989, which regulates political spending. I guess that's good. I don't know how effective yeah. it's been, but I'm sure it's better than it was. Maybe. So... That's one thing. And at his funeral, then Assemblyman Anal Hevesy or Adam? I think it was Adam, but it says Anal, and I know that's a name. I don't know. I think that I think my autocorrect changed Adam to Anal. Or oh my god, imagine autocorrect changed Adam to Anal? Anal. <laughs> oh my god, it capitalized it though. Anyway, I think it's Adam. Oh, oh, I figured it out. It's Alan. I probably Alan. typed it wrong. <laughs> You typed anal. <laughs> wow. Yikes. Freudian slip. So yeah. <laughs> the then Assemblyman Alan Hevesy said during the eulogy, quote, I must tell you there may be some confusion because of the recent events, but it doesn't have to be. That's not the reality. Forget the image. The real Donald Maines was an outstanding public figure. And a lot of the articles I read do go on to say a lot of the really incredible things he did in his early career. But there are Mm. some other things he tried to do that weren't so great either. So, you know, it's all this is to say, like, I agree that, you know, we shouldn't be defined by one action and that this is not all he was. And I'm sure there were a lot of redeeming qualities about him and human life is valuable and it's sad it was lost in this instance. Um, I'm really glad I read about this one because I was not interested at all, (laughs) at (laughs) all, to go into this one. And uh, I feel like I learned a lot and I feel like I... um, You're well versed in in city politics now. (laughs) Well, you know what? I feel like I learned a lot about uh, sort of how I look at crimes like this. This is nothing on paper that I would ever be like, "Ooh, this is a crime I would cover if we were choosing." Right. So I'm kind of glad that we have this format in our podcast because it's gonna sort of force the two of us, us, yeah, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) into topics we're not necessarily comfortable with. So
0: so the the thing I don't, I don't, how much more do you have oh that's it that's the end okay, so the thing that I didn't say at the end of the episode because it was it was so strange that i I wasn't sure how much they were going to be talking about the real crime because i didn't know it yeah was at the at the end of the law and order episode, there's a like pause and like text over the screen. And it says, after a six-week trial, all three defendants were found guilty of being accessories before the fact and solicitation of murder. They are free on their own recogn- recognizance while their convictions are being appealed. Although inspired by an actual corruption scandal, this story is entirely fictional and does not portray any person or event associated with that scandal. And I just thought that was so weird to put, like, we know it's a fictional show. Yeah. And so it was, it was this weird thing where it was like, are you giving me factual stuff? Or are you telling me, like, a weird plot story after the fact like it was just oddly it was very confusing because
1: yes like like this show promotes itself it's a show that like you know gets a lot of their stories from actual crime cases. And so knowing that and going into it and then seeing that sort of like bumper at the end with like an update, it sort of makes you feel like this is the update for the actual case. Right, yes. But it's not. It's for the show and it's not explained and it's very confusing. And I think it's just they didn't know the format of the show yet. Like I think that they... Didn't know how deep into the trials they were going to go because unlike every other Law & Order episode we see, we are like sort of shortchanged on the order, or I guess on the, yeah, on the order part of it. Like the, the crime, it's
0: mostly it police most work. Of the time. Yeah, it's mostly police work and not a lot of the like law, the law end of it. I, I don't I know. I feel like that's often really different in like Law & Order SVU. I remember a fair amount of the order process. Maybe it starts to kind of like shift over time to be more equal in the division of kind of the subject areas. Yeah, I would say in most of the episodes
1: if I'm like clocking it, it usually is like uh around 60% of the police work and 40% of the order so far. I think mm, this episode okay. was more like you know, 75% of the crime type stuff and the rest of the courtroom. So I think that they yeah. just didn't know what they were going to do yet cuz they still do that put that one bumper at the end of the episode that's like generally saying although based um on true on events. possible this true events. a fictional portrayal. Yeah, you know. yeah. But they don't, they never are specific again about like, oh, this is based on a corruption scandal or like they, I would say I've never seen a bumper
0: like that at the end with the update. They just yeah, end the episode totally with weird. the update. So yep. it was very strange. <laughs> an update on a not, an not real thing. It was almost like they ran out of time and they were like, okay, how do we wrap this up real quick?
1: Yeah, it was really strange. And they did that, yeah. oh, they did that weird thing too, that stylistic choice where they, uh, they ended the episode on a freeze frame of the courtroom that became a court
0: drawing. Oh yeah. True. Yeah. They must've been like, this is clever. Oh my gosh. Well, great job covering that. I know it was so funny as I was watching the episode, I was like, Oh gosh, I wonder if Matt is having the hardest time covering the true crime version of this because it wasn't like, it was so incomprehensible in the episode form that I was really worried about how you were going to do with, not like I was worried in you. I was worried that it would be really difficult to do. Oh,
1: I was terrified when I first looked up the crime. I was like, Oh my gosh. I put it off for days because I was like, you know what? I don't know how I'm going to do this because it didn't, I just like looked up the crime first, what it was. And I was like, Oh, that sounds boring. And then I like started to like look into it lightly. And I was like, Oh God, how am I going to do this? Like It does doesn't follow the sort of like usual format yeah and i was like how am i even going to do this in an exciting way and then um yeah as i was researching like what these things even meant <laughs> uh that's when i found out sort of like the later part of the story where i was like oh wow this actually is kind of interesting kind of interesting and and yeah. unusual and and kind of screwed up in its own way well you did good <laughs> thank good job. you i tried thanks for tuning in and listening and uh i i don't know if you have anything else but one thing i wanted to say i know we've said it in a previous episode but i want to like put this out there again we really are looking for a way (laughs) to sort of end our episodes these episodes yeah yeah. we wanted to you know we can't do this the other way around we can't do the true crime and then the episode (laughs) and end on a happy happy note it just doesn't work that way so if you have any ideas out there, we've thrown around a few, but if you have any ideas out there, you're the listeners. You're the reason we're doing this. So any ideas out there, how we can end the episodes in a way that leaves a better Isn't taste a in our mouth? Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> Should we just end with my impersonation of uh, Fran Drescher? <laughs> um, is it... <laughs> is it savory or sweet <laughs> or, or sour i've never done it before i'm sure
1: you'll do better than many of the drag queens on drag race who have tried to do her in
0: um oh, in God. snatch game has there been a successful one yet yeah actually jocelyn fox did fran Drescher really well i oh, oh wait no no no. i'm sorry courtney act did fran Drescher and she was pretty good and then uh jujube, jujube did fran dresser and she was actually really good jujube i think was the
1: Maybe the best of them, and I don't think it was great, and I love it it was Regu-G3, not great, so, so
0: you know hey. to be continued you can't okay, that's your bar <laughs> i'm gonna uh I'm gonna work on it and see if I can work it into the next ep- episode next week. oh okay, don't don't even tell me when it's coming, just okay, <laughs> it'll be a surprise. <laughs> yeah. well, we talked about uh thank you for listening and uh do the things like rate us, review us, subscribe, and we will see you next week. yes. Thank you so much, and yeah, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.